Good afternoon, and welcome to the fourth and final event in our series entitled New Technology and Old Rules, Constructing a Crypto Regulatory Framework. My name is Jennifer Schulp, and I'm the Director of Financial Regulation Studies at Cato Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. We started this series of events talking about crypto regulation from different regulatory perspectives, because crypto can alternately be seen as a commodity, a security, a currency, or something else entirely, overlapping and incomplete regulatory frameworks, including those of the SEC, CFTC, and, and banking regulators, have drawn criticism from all corners. So how should crypto be regulated, and by whom? Today's panel builds on our prior discussions to consider alternatives for a crypto regulatory framework. We're just a few weeks into 2022, and I've seen more articles than I can count declaring this the year of crypto regulation and making predictions about what will or what will not happen in the coming year. So at the very least, this discussion is timely. We're honored to be joined today by a great panel who can talk about the state of crypto regulation, where it's headed, and where it should be headed. We've got far more to talk about than an hour allows, so I'm happy to get us started by passing the microphone to our moderator, Nick Day, who is the Managing Editor for Global Policy and Regulation at Coindesk. Nick? Thank you so much. Good afternoon, everybody, and uh, thanks so much for inviting us onto this panel. Um, as Jennifer said, my name is Nick. I am a reporter and editor with Coindesk covering the intersection of regulation and crypto, and I'm excited to be moderating this panel today. Before I introduce our panelists, I'd just like to let everyone in the audience know that you can ask questions at any time on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, or the Cato Institute website by uh, hashtagging Cato Econ and asking your questions. We will be asking them throughout this next hour, so you know, don't wait till the end. Get started right now. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce Professor Angela Walsh of St. Mary's University's School of Law, Alan Cohn of Steptoe, and Jake Travinsky of the Blockchain Association. Uh, they'll be joining us for the next hour. And before we get to the questions, let's turn it over to them for some quick introductory remarks. Angela? Thank you so much, Nick. And thank you to the Cato Institute for inviting me here today. I am very excited to be here. This is a really important topic. So um, we were asked to give a quick two to three minute introduction. And um, I have just a few things that I'd like to say. I'm going to give you uh, uh, what praise I have for the moment, so a worry that I have, a will I have, and a prediction. And I will start with the praise for the process. Um, I am excited that policymakers and regulators are finally super engaged about um, crypto and um, getting to the bottom of, you know, of regulation. Um, I, I feel like, um, as Jennifer said at the beginning, um, like this is the year, this is the moment where we are going to see some things happen. And I don't know whether that's going to mean heavy regulation. I don't know whether that's going to mean no regulation or somewhere in the middle, right? Um, <clears throat> but I I, I think we're seeing many uh, briefings happen, happening of policymakers and regulators. Uh, we've certainly seen a lot of congressional hearings um, from actually all different kinds of committees. Um, I believe there's going to be one on um, the energy uh, footprint of Bitcoin coming up very soon. Um, and all of these are really useful for um, policymakers to get even more educated. Uh, about it. Um, I think that the infrastructure um, fight over the summer 
Nope. It's possible we lost Angela there. Um, while we try to get her back, Alan, you want to uh, go ahead and start your opening? Yes, absolutely. Thanks, Nick. And, and thanks to the Cato Institute. And, uh, and again, likewise, it's a privilege to join the other panelists today. Uh, so I'm Alan Cohen. I'm a partner at Steptoe & Johnson in Washington, DC. Uh, I'm the co-chair of the firm's blockchain and cryptocurrency practice. Uh, and I came to Steptoe from the Department of Homeland Security, where I was an assistant secretary and where I first got exposure to cryptocurrency in the 2014 timeframe. So we're now 13 years into the existence of cryptocurrency. Um, we're several years into real you know, regulator engagement. And I think that the, the verdict on the construction of a crypto regulatory framework is definitely, it's still a work in progress. Uh, it's been demonstrated by the previous panels, different regulators are taking different approaches. And I think a key point is that these different approaches have different impacts, not only on the entities, the companies, the individuals, the markets that they regulate, but also on the level of knowledge that each regulator has obtained over the past several years, based in large part on how much they engage with the industry and how much their regulatory processes invite or even compel industry to engage with them. And it may be that level of knowledge rather than the strength of a specific regulatory regime or the success or failure of a specific enforcement action that's going to dictate how effective the regulator is at this point and how well positioned the regulator is to address new developments, technical, operational, governance that emerge almost continually in the space. And so I think that is the key that regulators will need to grapple with and that we'll discuss more today. The challenge is not to finally hone the regulatory approach to the handful of original cryptocurrencies or, or sharpen the enforcement measures against early initial coin offerings. The challenge is really figuring out how to keep pace with innovators and innovations in this space. DeFi, decentralized governance, rapid adoption of stable coins, uh, central bank digital currencies, and create effective left and right boundaries and guardrails that provide clear, effective guidance and effectively delineate between good actors and bad. Uh, and I look forward to this discussion today to delve more deeply into some of those, those issues. Awesome, I'm also looking forward to it. But first, Jake, uh, floor is yours. Thanks. Um, uh, Nick, uh, great to be having this conversation and thank you very much to the Cato Institute for, for inviting me and for hosting this very important discussion about crypto regulation. Um, by way of introduction, my name is Jake Trevinsky. I am head of policy for the Blockchain Association, which is the crypto industry's primary trade association in Washington, D.C. Uh, we have about 70 members now. We're still growing. Uh, that includes many of the largest and most important crypto companies in the United States. And our job is to advocate for good policy that will help both the industry and also the technology to succeed. And by extension, to make sure that Americans get all of the benefits that this technology has to offer. Um, here's the, the message that I want to deliver. Crypto is a very exciting and very transformative technology, but it's not the first one that policymakers have encountered, even in recent memory. It was only about 30 years ago that we were debating the rise of another new technology called the internet, which at the time, some people thought was just a passing fad. Um, one famous example of this that gets repeated often is a statement by famed economist Paul Krugman as late as 1998, in which he said that he thought the internet would have no more impact on the world than the fax machine. 
well, here we are now living in an internet-based world, having this conversation on an internet-based video call while Mr. Krugman is using his internet-based platform, the New York Times website, to say now that he thinks crypto is a passing fad. So what can we learn from our experience in the 1990s and our policy approach to the rise of the internet? Now, importantly, the internet revolution was the result of American innovation. And even today, it is still led by American entrepreneurs and American companies. And that's largely because the Clinton administration in the 1990s followed a simple rule in their approach to the internet. The rule was first, do no harm. Let me say that again, first, do no harm. It was that rule that attracted American entrepreneurs to build the future of the internet. And it also ultimately gave us good, although still evolving regulation, providing the necessary safeguards for consumers and others to use the internet safely today. Now, in this era with crypto, we should follow the same rule, do no harm, to make sure that American entrepreneurs and American companies are the ones who build the future of crypto. For the most part, policymakers in the United States have followed that rule, with one major exception, and that's the one that I, I want to uh, give some attention to right now, which is the Securities and Exchange Commission. Unfortunately, the SEC's approach to crypto over the course of many years has, in my opinion, done significant harm, not only to the crypto industry, but also to the same American consumers and investors who the SEC is supposed to protect and frankly, also to the reputation of the SEC as a federal regulatory agency itself. The approach the SEC has taken has been characterized by a lack of clarity, by the constant threat of vague enforcement, but combined with a refusal to engage on substance. And as a result, this approach has already started to push otherwise good actors offshore to other jurisdictions where they are now building this technology. That approach has to stop. I'm sure we're gonna talk a lot more about the SEC and also the other regulators uh, that are active in this space during this panel. So I'll save the rest of my critique and insights uh, into this issue for later. But the simple message I just want everyone to hear and internalize now is for the United States to succeed in the future crypto-based world, first, we must do no harm. Thanks. Thanks, Jake. And we have Angela back. So I'd like to throw it back to her to complete her statement and then we'll get right into it. Great, thank you so much. Speaking of the internet, um, I just went out here on my computer. So I am on my phone. Thank you for understanding. Um, I will uh, just quickly continue uh, from where I left off with my statement. I think I um, broke up. Um, I'll transition to my worries. So I, I said my praise was for the interest from policymakers and the rapid education that I see happening. My worry um, associated with crypto and crypto regulation is that um, we are with the interest, I think, and the excitement about crypto and the fact that crypto is now seen as a, an, an important political constituency um, with actually a lot of money for uh, lobbying as well and, um, you know, a, a burgeoning lobbying force. Um, I think that um, we're still likely to be missing some of the big problems that um, uh, that I worry about, like from a systemic financial stability perspective. Um, we're still seeing basic descriptions of crypto systems kind of being 
off in a way that I think can matter um, from a financial stability um, perspective, such as, you know, we're still describing systems as having no intermediaries. Um, we're still describing them as facilitating direct peer-to-peer -peer transfers of value. Um, I have taken issue with that for a long time and continue to do so. Um, if we miss intermediaries within the systems, we're allowing risk to build. Um, I, I think that is still um, a concern. I also worry that we are in the moment where um, we are seeing crypto fully integrating into the um, traditional financial system. Um, I've heard it called hybrid finance and or hi-fi. And I think that's probably um, kind of uh, where we're going quite rapidly. And this is what I would analogize to a moment that we've seen in the past where it's everyone feels like they have the pressure to stand up and dance. Um, like uh, Chuck Prince said um, about the moment when everyone was, you know, um, doing um, all the sort of default swaps, mortgage-backed securities, all that kind of stuff prior to the financial crisis. Everyone's going to get up and dance, and that's when I worry that critical thinking can kind of fall by the wayside. A wish that I have uh, for, for the coming year and for our approach to crypto regulation generally is, um, I, think, I think, twofold. I would really like to see um, some, you know, much more funding um, and like rapid funding of research into crypto systems. We don't understand these systems very well. We don't understand how the systems interact with one another. We don't understand how the different levels under interact with one another and the, um, the, the risks of, um, you know, problems within the systems are not very well understood. We're, we're treating the assets on them as if the assets are stable without understanding the systems on which they operate. The second wish is that we would actually get this um, sort of uh, task force of, you know, super experts from all fields and all perspectives on crypto to um, maybe um, spend a year really getting to the bottom of this and coming up with uh, regulatory recommendations. Um, and my prediction, we'll see more international collaboration with the Financial Stability Board kind of leading the way and um, gridlock will continue. So we may end up seeing an extremely favorable regulatory environment for crypto due to the kind of current trendiness um, of it amongst politicians. Thanks. Awesome, thank you, Angela. And I definitely wanna revisit some of those, but let's start with this. Um, you know, we've been talking about crypto regulation and it's kind of the debate we've seen emerge in the U.S. in recent months is there should be either, you know, a single federal regulator, whether that is an existing one with more power or a brand new regulator uh, overseeing crypto, or, you know, the other side is we should continue allowing the current state and federal, uh, you know, piecemeal approach. And, you know, I, I don't want to talk about, you know, which one is you know, best, but let's get into specifics. You know, what are the factors here? what makes the most sense and anyone please feel to jump in but jake i want to start with you since this is kind of your you know bread and butter here uh you know what do you think yeah sure happy to take that um i think honestly it's too early to say whether there should be a new regulator or not at this point um as best as i can tell i don't think it's necessary and the reason is because i think what we're seeing in crypto while it is transformative and very exciting it's a technological upgrade on existing systems that we've already been dealing with and regulating for quite a long time. So, you know, to the extent that there are commodity derivatives that are moving on blockchain rails as opposed to through centralized exchanges, that's just a technological difference that doesn't really require a brand new regulator to address that change. You know, regulators always have to adapt to new technology. They take the same issues that they have been addressing in, you know, one technological regime and they apply it to a new one. This happened with the internet, uh, you know, electronic 
electronic trading markets have fundamentally revolutionized how, how many markets have worked. We didn't create a new electronic trading markets regulator. Instead, we trusted the SEC, a very old and established organization, and the CFTC and others to do the same work they had always done, but in the internet context. I, I'm not saying that there will never be reason for a brand new regulator. Perhaps we'll see something in crypto become big enough or systemically important enough that it justifies creating a brand new agency. Sometimes that does happen. You know, we create a new agency to regulate nuclear energy production. Uh, you know, we've had energy for a very long time before that, but that was a, an instance where it made sense to create a new regulator for new technology. I just don't think that's where we are with crypto right now. And I think just because of how nascent the industry is, uh, it, again, from, you know, going back to my comments in a sense of first do no harm, I just think it's too early for us to take a heavy handed approach like creating a brand new regulatory agency for crypto. I mean, if I could add to that, I think that, um, you know, the most important thing right now is for regulators to clearly define their re requirements, what they expect of different entities in this space. And I think it's not that we haven't seen that happen. We've seen that happen in a very uneven way. Um, uh, you know, as, as Jake noted, the SEC has been very reticent to set clear, you know, clear guidance that can be repeatedly applied across different co companies, resisting that and insisting on, on you know, taking a case-by-case -case basis. Other regulators have not taken that, even at the federal level. I think FinCEN has done a, a very good job of articulating some clear left and right boundaries and a process for engagement and filing of information and, and not trying to wait until they know everything until uh, to set a regulatory framework. And so what I think that means is that first, each regulator should really be pushed to say, well, what do we really, what do we expect? What do we want in this space? And how do we create a regulatory regime? And maybe it's FinCEN's that's a good guide where we have better visibility, we have constant engagement, and if we have a clear set of expectations that we can build upon. And then, you know, as, as Jake has alluded to, um, you know, in other contexts, the U.S. government has, has figured out how to either harmonize those requirements through some type of executive branch body, through a um, uh, uh, through an SRO, or through some other mechanism that accounts for the fact that there are different public policy interests at play. There are different pu public policy mandates and important public policy goals um, that that many of the regulators have in this space. And, and I agree with Jake, it's, it's just, for that reason, it's way too early to, to certainly to crown one regulator as the keeper of all regulations and all, and all important public policy interests in this space. Sure. Um, yeah, I think this is a really important question. And I know there've been proposals kind of either way. People have, uh, you know, in, in various op-eds have kind of staked out positions about, you know, the new regulator versus kind of leaving it as it is versus maybe um, like bringing the SEC and the CFTC together on this point. Um, a few things that I would say um, should be part of, um, you know, our analysis of this question. Um, so we've been going, you know, for over a decade now with um, trying to figure out how uh, crypto systems fit into the existing uh, regulatory structure. Um, and from my perspective, um, you know, there's still a lot of confusion. There's still a lot of uncertainty. And I think regulators and the industry have been doing their best to 
get to um, clarity on this, but we're not there. And I think it is because, you know, square peg, round hole. And I think that the longer that we um, try to cram crypto into the existing framework, um, the more we're letting risks build and uh, sit unaddressed, the more things can uh, fall through the cracks. And also then the more that people kind of um, make investments um, based on a regulatory structure that may not be stable because we may you know, ultimately realize that, okay, we really do need to do this differently. Like we, if we get burned by um, something bad happening. Um, I'm also concerned um, with leaving it to the existing regulators because I feel like there need, like whenever I'm thinking about these issues, I keep feeling like we need to take it up a level in our analysis. Like you can't just get stuck in the SEC framework. You can't just get stuck in the CFTC framework, et, et cetera, for all the various regulators. Someone needs to be sitting on top of that and have kind of a holistic big picture view of what is happening. And I don't feel like that um, really exists right now with the current regulatory structure. And that's when I worry that financial stability risks, systemic stability risks, really understanding how what's happening internally in the systems um, affects um, the financial system at large or the crypto financial system at large. Um, I think that that could come from someone having the full-time job of, um, of understanding, of organizing, of bringing the various regulators together. I think we need that coordinating um, force. Um, so those are just some of the things that I think we need to be considering there. So I, I don't know, Nick, if you want me to jump back in there, um, but just to uh, comment oh, on Angela, yeah. feel free to stop me. But um, I actually, I largely agree with, with Angela's point there. I do think, uh, you know, when she says square peg round hole, that's a great way to look at existing financial regulation, which basically depends on the existence of financial intermediaries as applied to crypto, the point of which is to disintermediate the financial system, right? There's just sort of a fundamental mismatch between a lot of the regulatory frameworks that we have now and how the crypto financial system works. I think the question becomes, does that mean that we should have a brand new financial regulator to deal with crypto? And I think, you know, as, as skeptical as I am, just like Angela said, about trusting existing regulators to just sort of figure this out themselves or to, to um, create a new regulatory framework just through rulemaking, I don't think that's an appropriate uh, approach. I do think we need new legislation. I think Congress needs to, to do its job and figure out um, at least who should be regulating these different types of, um, of protocols and systems. I don't see the need for a new financial regulator, which I believe would create just another turf war of the kind that we've seen between the SEC and the CFTC. So, you know, you could imagine a digital asset that genuinely is a security, right? There are many uh, types of security tokens where everyone agrees these tokens are securities. It wouldn't make much sense to create a brand new financial regulator who's then going to argue with the SEC about who's going to regulate those types of assets. The same thing for commodity derivatives. Commodity derivatives are regulated by the CFTC. The CFTC should understand how the crypto ecosystem uses commodity derivatives. It wouldn't make sense to create a third regulator who then fights with the CFTC or jurisdiction for that. So I just think, again, it's, you know, it's too soon for us to, to decide we need a new regulator. We need to have Congress do its job and figure out who the current regulators are that should be looking at different aspects of the system. So I want to expand the kind of scope of what we're talking about here. Angela, in your introductory remarks, you mentioned, you know, the increasing role of international collaboration. And, you know, I, I want to start with you on this one, but, you know, how do we kind of see this, uh, happening if you know within the US there's you know all this discussion about how to regulate crypto and 
you know, obviously crypto, the whole point is to kind of be borderless to, you know, be something that, you know, if I'm living in India, I can easily use its transfer value to someone in the US or someone, you know, elsewhere without having to go through, you know, nine rounds of, you know, KYC and everything. So where do you see this kind of international collaboration? Where are some of the, you know, pain points that you see regulators kind of grappling with as they work with each other? And then, you know, what are some of the concerns that they should be looking at when they're approaching, you know, working with their counterparts in different countries? Sure. I think that's a really important question. Um, before I jump into it, I, I do just want to say quickly, um, the, uh, just to follow up to Jake's comment there, um, the, the conversation about intermediaries and stuff, I, I think really is the hallmark of all of this, right? Um, Jake is talking about the systems being disintermediated and we don't have to regulate them in the same ways. Um, I'm hoping we can get to the point where we talk about them as differently intermediated and think about what risks the actual intermediaries within the systems pose that might be different from the existing ones. Um, back to international collaboration. Um, so there has been discussion, um, there's been commentary from um, people in, within the Bank of England, there's been commentary from uh, people at the BIS, um, about um, this being the year where um, they expect to see the Financial Stability Board take some um, um, additional actions to try to um, come up with a framework that um, is more global for crypto regulation. And, you know, this would be the dream, right? When you have a borderless system um, in, you know, logic says that the only way you can actually um, meaningfully regulate or um, affect systems like that is for there to be international cooperation on it. Now, um, this is a, a crazy world we're living in right now, and um, we don't have much collaboration or cooperation in the US and that, you know, I, I don't know how optimistic to be about that. Um, I think that, um, we have seen some, um, you know, international efforts in uh, financial regulation or things touching the financial system be, uh, you know, they're at least in effect, um, right? We have the uh, um, we have FATF that uh, that standards for um, AML KYC um, for you know members of FATF. We have uh, the Basel standards that are are promulgated. So you know, it could be that this takes the form of something like that, right? Um, the FSB, or there could even be, you know, like a, an inter international crypto standard setting body or something that um, that tries to get at, I would, I would guess this would be primarily um, to address financial stability concerns. Um, and that's really a persistent uh, worry of, of mine. I think, um, more so than you know the nitty gritty in any of the regulatory agencies within the U.S. Alan, so Steptoe and Johnson's an international law firm, and I'm kind of curious for your uh, perspective here. You know, what have you seen or experienced or heard? You know, from you know the perspective of trying to address uh, you know representing crypto companies that are trying to navigate you know these international frameworks as they exist right now. You know, what do you see as either to status quo or as being needed? You know, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> Overwhelmingly, the questions become, I understand what I'm being expected to do by my home country regulator. I don't understand what I'm being asked to do by a US 
regulators. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I mean, we, we've talked at length about kind of what substantively all the different re requirements are. But I think, you know, we're, be, we're seeing, I think, more of an effort on the, on the international basis to regulate based on function and to recognize that if entities perform certain functions, um, then they may be subject to regulations based on engaging in those functions. Um, if uh, an asset has certain characteristics um, that give it a certain function as a currency, as some type of utility, um, as a, you know, some type of uh, electronic payment mechanism, then its actions along those lines uh, you know, can be regulated by function. In the United States, we're struggling to get um, a, a through line or a rational through line that, that cuts across each of the regulatory agencies. And so, you know, at the risk of, of beating the dead horse, I think we, we continue to come back. We, we just constantly see confusion about what is the expectation in the United States and why is there such a lack of clarity. It's overwhelmingly uh, the thing that clients ask us about. It's overwhelmingly the thing that clients ask us to help them navigate. Um, and particularly for non-US companies seeking to either do business in the United States, service customers in the United States, or alternately avoid the United States, um, uh, you know, and, and avoid the uh, you know, US persons and, and, and entities as, as customers or counterparties or others. They're confounded as to why it is so difficult for the United States to, sim to clearly and simply define what it wants um, and, and on what basis it wants it. And I think until the U.S. can really do that, we're going to have a really difficult problem reaching that kind of international harmonization and even reaching the questions that, that Angela's mentioned about understanding, you know, non-roles of intermediaries versus different roles of intermediaries, we're almost a step back behind that and almost unable to engage in, in, in kind of higher order conversations of that nature. I, so, I totally agree. Oh, sorry, Nick, go ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead. I was just gonna say, I, you know, I totally agree with, with, um, with Alan's perspective. I'll give you the sort of flip side of the coin on that, which is um, the perspective from US crypto companies is often, Although there is a lack of clarity in the U.S., there's a lot of engagement here, right? We sort of, um, we, we have some sense of where things are heading in the U.S. We know how the SEC and the CFTC and the OCC and, you know, the alphabet soup of agencies are at least starting to think about their approach. Um, what I think U.S. crypto companies are, are very, um, I would say, confused and not yet informed about is what's happening in Europe. So, you know, I think in the vacuum of U.S. leadership, uh, the European Union has really decided to step forward and try to take charge in setting a global standard for crypto regulation. And that comes mostly in the form of the MICA regulation, the Markets and Crypto Assets Regulation, which I, I believe is set to be finalized in the next couple of months here. And it's, you know, multiple hundreds of pages. Um, Nick, I'm sure you could explain it better than I can. I've spent a lot of time trying to understand what it means. And despite it being hundreds of pages, I think it's still um, somewhat unclear and will require 
several more years of definition in the EU. But basically what's happening is the EU is now taking this global leadership role in deciding how these global markets should be regulated. And crypto markets are by nature global. So it's very hard to be a US crypto company and just say, you know, what's happening in Europe is thousands of miles away. That doesn't affect us. These regulations are going to affect everyone in the world. And the goal of the EU with Mika is much like their goal with GDPR, which is to try to set a standard that all jurisdictions around the world can adopt and then enforce. And I think unless the US gets more active and starts you know, getting its ducks in a row and figuring out how we want to approach this space, what is likely to happen is Mika will become the global standard and the US will end up being a follower instead of a leader. Yeah, it's um, actually uh, Kyle from the audience is actually asking, you know, what countries offer a useful example of good governance when it comes to crypto? And I think this plays into that. Yeah, I think it does. I think, um, not to belabor this point, but there is in crypto this, um, this distinction between the centralized intermediaries, and we should definitely, you know, free up some time for Angela and me to have the, the very fun debate about how we define an intermediary and, and, you know, why that's so important to define carefully. But, you know, the centralized intermediaries, in other words, the custodians who customers are trusting almost exactly like customers have for decades trusted ordinary regulated financial institutions versus software protocols, where there may be actors who are playing um, some kind of intermediary role. Again, you know, very um, big conversation that, that we could have, um, but also the regulations that have typically applied to regulated financial institutions just don't make a whole lot of sense in what I would call a disintermediated context. And even Mika, which again, hundreds of pages and is an attempt by the EU to be comprehensive regulation for again, markets in crypto assets, that's the name of the regulation, still doesn't really address the DeFi space and was drafted before Web3 was really a hot topic. So it doesn't really clarify how we will handle regulation of things like NFTs. And you know, NFTs were barely on the radar 12 months ago. Who knows what type of technology we'll be discussing 12 months from now. So I think um, it's fair to say that Mika is the global um, leading example of what looks like comprehensive regulation. I'm not optimistic that it'll stay that way as time goes on. So I think the US, you know, this is a, is a signal for the US to get its act together so that we can play the leadership role that we have traditionally played and wanna play in the future. So jumping on one of your points, we do have an audience question. An audience member is asking, is crypto really dis uh, disintermediating or is it enabling a different set of players to become the new intermediaries? And I think that's a very solid question for you know kind of framing this debate. And Jake, Angela, I know you've been both uh, expressing your views. If you want to start us off and then Alan, I would love to get your view as well. I would say Angela should lead it off since this is her, uh, you know, her area of expertise. Great. Um, okay, so uh, I think this is a really important question um, because it is one of the core um, claims that we have for blockchain and crypto systems, right? That if they do not have intermediaries, then um, that is, of course, a, a massive improvement on existing systems because if you don't have intermediaries, you don't have things like intermediary risk, right? You don't have rent seeking, rent seeking by intermediaries. You don't have um, people in the middle being able to um, stop you from transacting how you want to transact. So these are our big claims, right? Um, but I'm, I'm 
um, I'm a little bit worried, maybe more than a little bit, um, that we are sloppy in describing these systems as disintermediated or lacking intermediaries. Um, just um, that we're missing, I feel like, important players within the systems, such as miners and validators, who are the gates to the record that um, is the, the core of a blockchain system. You can't get your transaction on the ledger unless you go through a miner. Um, and um, there's been a lot of research. I just saw um, a statistic this morning that over $500 million was um, um, uh, <laughs> characterized as minor extractable value just in 2021, where the miners are exploiting their role um, as transaction processors and selectors and orderers of the ledger to, um, to you know, take computer scientists call them bribes, but to take payments um, to order transactions preferentially or to take those preferential orders for themselves. Um, so I think we see a lot of analogies between these and other parts of the financial system that we need to think about. Um, and certainly there are intermediaries that have grown up kind of outside uh, the crypto systems. I think those are easier to see. Those are like the big exchanges. Um, those are um, the venture capitalists that are, um, you know, uh, playing a big role in many of the DAOs and um, in, in DeFi. So um, I, I think we can't get lazy in calling these things disintermediated. It's, it's critical, I think, that we call them um, re-intermediated, differently intermediated, and um, really hone in on their roles and um, whether we're comfortable with what they're doing. So I, I fundamentally disagree that it's appropriate to describe miners and validators as intermediaries. Let me first, though, say, um, I deeply respect Angela's work. I think that she should get a lot of credit for surfacing a very important issue. There are a lot of crypto boosters who are very dismissive of her work, and I think that's absolutely wrong. I think that there are a lot of people who pretend like miners just don't exist, right? If you have enough of them, we don't even have to pay attention to their role in the ecosystem. I think that's wrong. So I think this is a really important issue for us to discuss. I think that to describe a miner as a gatekeeper is just technically inaccurate. I think, and part, part of this might just be a semantic issue. Um, when I think of an intermediary, and more importantly, when I look at financial regulation that applies to intermediaries, they apply to centralized actors who have a trusted role and often a legal relationship with a customer, such that the customer has almost like a, a fiduciary relationship, right? A special trusted relationship with that intermediary, such that it is appropriate to impose regulations on that intermediary for the protection of the customer or for the protection of the system to the extent that there is systemic risk. That is, in my mind, fundamentally different from how miners and validators operate. Miners are not gatekeepers in the sense that you have to go beg the miners for access to the system because the miners don't act as a single entity. All you need is a single miner to accept your transaction and add it to the blockchain in order to have access to the blockchain. And I suppose in a, in a purely hypothetical world, you could imagine every single miner, right, all of the billions and billions of dollars of investment in companies that are mining blocks in the Bitcoin blockchain. In theory, you could imagine every single one of them refusing access to a particular uh, user who's trying to get a, a transaction through. In reality, that is not how the Bitcoin blockchain works. And that is by design. The purpose of decentralization in Bitcoin is so that that type of gatekeeping activity cannot happen and does not happen. So I think it's wrong to treat miners or validators as intermediaries in that sense. 
That's not to say that they play no role in the ecosystem though. And I think that Angela raises really important points about doing a careful analysis of what role miners and validators do play and trying to figure out, is it appropriate for us to impose any type of regulatory compliance obligations on them based on that activity? Uh, MEV is a fairly new phenomenon. I think it's very poorly understood. It's also something that is still being very actively researched by folks who are a lot smarter than me, right? Cryptographers and software engineers who understand this stuff a whole lot better than any of us lawyers do. And I think the mistake we should avoid making is rushing to regulate before we fully understand. In that sense, I think Angela and I might be in, in violent disagreement. I think we both agree we need to do a lot more research. We can't ignore this issue. We need to understand it better so that we can make good policy decisions going forward. Yeah, I mean, I'd only add, I, I can't add anything to the substance on the on that debate. I think that that Angela and, and, and Jake have, have articulated the, the 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 different perspectives. I would just add, and I and I view this through the lens of of a, of a former um, you know executive branch employee trying to grapple with similar uh, similar uh, types of issues across other types of complex uh, subjects, it pains me to see the, the, right, the agencies trying to, to, trying to figure out how regulation should work in this space, you know, putting up solicitations to hire one blockchain expert, two blockchain experts to help them in their efforts. Um, so some of the larger cabinet departments not only have research staffs, but budgets to engage with you know, categories of entities, um, re federally funded research and development centers that provide real analytic expertise and capability to those departments. And I think one thing that, that maybe needs to be added to the agenda in this space is to get some of that analytic heft harnessed and marshaled in the service of the agencies that are trying to figure this out, because it is too much to just simply expect you know, these issues to get surfaced in an effective way, in a meaningful way, in a consumable way. Um, if the government isn't, you know, investing the resources in order to understand these issues at more than a surface level and more than a policy level. Um, so I, I think that uh, it, this debate is a good illustration of just the depth of knowledge that's necessary for the, the, the range of agencies that are trying to grapple their way through this space. I think this is probably going to be a ongoing discussion, but I want to shift gears a little bit and look at stablecoins for a few minutes. Um, we, we've gotten a number of audience questions about stablecoins, and I've got a few of my own, but um, I, I think the first one is just kind of, you know, the U.S. has not really issued any kind of stablecoin specific regulation, whether that's from an agency or from the, you know, from a congressional act, yet everyone's kind of expressed views. Um, so what is, you know, what are the factors in this discussion and, you know, when do you think we might see something specific from either a federal regulator or, you know, Congress that is explicitly saying, you know, stablecoin issuers have to do X, Y, Z, and, you know, here's the concerns we're looking at. Open to anyone who's wants. Jake, let's start with you. Not to put you on the spot, but since again, you know, you kind of work directly with a lot of the lawmakers here. You know, what have you heard uh, 
have you heard anything from lawmakers saying like, yeah, we want to do this with stable coins or is this just not an issue that they're focused on right now? It's definitely an issue. I, I think um, the reason it's an issue, of course, is the, uh, the president's working group report that came out uh, at the end of last year. Uh, in which the, the working group analyzed stablecoins, explained that stablecoins are a very important issue that we need to get our hands around, and then basically said in so many words that the agencies do not have jurisdiction currently in order to adequately address uh, stablecoins. Now, of course, no government agency ever openly admits they don't have regulatory authority, so they tried to spin a story about, you know, here's what we might be able to do if we were to really stretch our authority, but, but they basically said Congress must take action. And you know, the president's working group doesn't speak that often uh, at all, let alone in, in such uh, stark language. So I think members of Congress have really taken that to heart and are paying very careful attention to that. I think we are still in um, a period of education. I mean, again, you know, to the point, all of this is so new. Members of Congress are trying to understand just what's going on in this space, what the future might look like, so they can figure out how to properly regulate without chilling innovation, right? Without throwing, uh, you know, all the benefits of the technology out as they um, as they try to figure out a, a good regulatory approach. I think the biggest debate right now is between a CBDC, a central bank digital currency versus private sector development of stable coins. And we see folks landing on sort of, you know, every, um, every different part of the spectrum from, uh, you know, at the most sort of centrally planned version, uh, we should prevent the private sector from issuing stable coins. Only the government can do so. We should have a CBDC that is the one and only digital dollar all the way to the other end, which is we absolutely shouldn't allow any CBDC of any kind, only the private sector should be allowed to develop these solutions. And then a lot of, of sort of middle uh, ground approaches, uh, such as a CBDC that protects certain fundamental principles, such as protecting user privacy and being open source so that developers can build their own technology on top of the CBDC while also allowing the private sector to build alternatives. Uh, and the other big debate about this is if the private sector is to be allowed to produce stable coins, which I firmly believe they absolutely should be, then what is the proper regulation for stable coin issuers, both centralized issuers and also decentralized protocols that produce assets that attempt to track the value of the dollar. So you can see this is a really big and complicated universe that requires a lot of education before we make any decisions. Um, I would say if this Congress is going to do anything related to crypto this year, I imagine it would be on stable coins. Uh, as we all know, our Congress tends not to get a whole lot done under the best of circumstances on even the most important and pressing issues of national concern, let alone on something as, as complex and new as crypto. But this is definitely top of mind for, uh, for members of Congress and their staff right now. And just to throw another question from the audience in there, Bert asked, uh, given that stablecoin issuers share key characteristics with money market mutual funds, notably a commitment to hold highly liquid assets so that they don't break the buck, i.e. pay their liabilities at par, isn't the SEC the most logical regulator here? And I, I will just say, I think this is, you know, focusing mainly on stablecoin issuers that have uh, said that they're backed by, you know, baskets of liquid, uh, liquid assets and securities. Uh, I know not every stablecoin issuer has, you know, made this statement so far. 
I mean, I think what you've heard from from Jake is that there's a lot of different pieces of the just a stablecoin ecosystem, and I and I think that um, what we're starting to do is to is to almost go down the same road that we've gone down with uh, cryptocurrencies or cryptographic assets generally, which is is there some piece of this asset that resembles something that's regulated currently by a regulator? I think that the the SEC has been very clear that really what they're looking for is is there is there any capital formation going on at all in the launch of a protocol, in which case we're going to consider this an investment contract, regardless of what else is going on in the stablecoin space? You know, there there are a range of different issues from things that the, the US government, the, the Congress has grappled with for hundreds of years, like private, privately issued currencies, bank issued currencies, you know, the competition between uh, you know, composition of letters of credit and, and things of this nature, which were the, kind of the hallmark of the US economic system you know, for longer than there's been a centralized you know, currency system, um, combined with questions about um, full or fractional reserves, integrity of holdings, information reporting. So I, I think we have to, again, be measured in you know, thinking about how we regulate these, uh, th- this class of assets and the entities that administer them or the protocols on which they are administered. And I think we have to resist that urge to say, well, okay, that piece resembles this thing that we do, so let's call it that and go down that road. Um, I think these are all really good points. Um, One thing that I would just add is that um, I think Jake's comments really um, drew out the complexity and the diversity of issues in this space. Um, it's, it's not one simple thing that we're trying to figure out with, with stable coins and then, you know, throw in, you know, how it's the same, how it's different, how it interacts, should it coexist with the, the you know, potential CBDCs. Um, it is really hard. And I think we need to be humble. Um, I didn't say this, I probably should have said this in my opening comments. We do need to be humble um, and um, really seeking to learn and understand, right? Recognizing that every decision that we make um, to act, you know, we're affecting things that are complex and poorly understood, but also to not act, we're affecting things that are complex and poorly understood. And um, I lament the fact that we have scaled things to, you know, huge levels um, without really understanding or, or figuring them out. And I, I mean, I guess that's one of the fundamental trade-offs, right, with um, enabling innovation, right? Things can grow before you really understand them. And, you know, we may wish like with some of the, you know, problems we've seen with, okay, Facebook scaled massively and gosh, it can cause all these problems that may end up bringing down democracy. Um, whoops. So um, very hard problems. And I think we need to remain humble. So Shifting gears again, uh, we have about 10 minutes left and I want to just quickly run through something. Yesterday, the House Energy and Commerce Committee confirmed that there will be a hearing on the energy impact of crypto uh, next week. And, you know, this is probably going to be a growing issue. Um, I think uh, we saw reports this morning that the last seven years have been kind of the warmest in Earth's history. So 
clearly a topic of increasing discussion. You know, where do you see climate policy possibly intersecting with crypto or, uh, you know, where do you see crypto possibly, you know, either adding to the conversation around climate issues or uh, is it just going to be completely, you know, two separate worlds? And Angela, I want to start with you since, um, you know, your state of Texas has recently uh, enabled law or enacted the law that uh, I think encourages uh, more Bitcoin mining through uh, some of the existing facilities there. Yeah, so Texas is the new mecca for Bitcoin mining. Um, That is not an overstatement. Um, It is growing massively. And um, our politicians, um, uh, Greg Abbott, our governor, is, you know, actively encouraging uh, Bitcoin miners to come. There's a whole lot of um, centers being set up. Um, I went to a Texas blockchain summit in October, where all of, let's say, Cornyn, Senator Senators Cornyn and Cruz spoke and welcomed the miners. Um, like, it's it's the cool thing here. Um, this is all happening at the same time as Texas um, is struggling with the stability of its electrical grid. Um, we had the big winter storm last year, and um, you know it was catastrophic for us. And so there have not been good answers yet on um, how. Bitcoin's use of electricity, which is, we all know is extensive, how that actually impacts an electrical grid. There are claims that it actually is um, stabilizing to a grid um, by virtue of its ability to shut off its demand um, and allow others to access the grid. But um, I think we're only beginning to see the um, energy academics kind of engage with this issue and analyze it. There are big claims being made um, by, you know, some people who I consider to be very intelligent that Bitcoin is useful to the grid, but there are, you know, claims by other smart people who I respect that Bitcoin is catastrophic for the environment. So I think we have to, to like engage and get to this problem get to the heart of this really complex problem. So I'd love to see some funding for research right there, a task force dedicated to that. I couldn't agree more with that. And and that's why I'm really glad that we're going to see this hearing next week. This is the first congressional hearing focused on this issue. And I, I will tell you, I think that it will be a very productive conversation. You know, we hear a lot of loud voices on either end of the spectrum, you know, from, uh, from some environmentalists who don't believe that Bitcoin has value in the first place. And so they think that any energy that is used for Bitcoin mining is by definition a total waste to, you know, the other end of the spectrum, again, to Bitcoiners who completely dismiss the issue of carbon emissions at all, or just want to deflect attention, right? We hear often this statement about, why are you looking at Bitcoin mining? Christmas lights will use more energy this year than the entire Bitcoin network will. And that, that's sort of a maybe a fun, snarky comment to make on Twitter. It's not a serious policy response to a very legitimate concern about the environmental impact of Bitcoin mining. I think what's great is um, two things that are happening in the U.S. right now. First of all, as Angela said, Texas specifically, but also the United States in general, is a huge beneficiary of what I think was a massive mistake in Chinese policy in banning Bitcoin mining from that jurisdiction. The US has been the biggest beneficiary and recipient of mining hash rate and mining companies setting up here in the US. 
we should make sure that we continue to encourage Bitcoin miners to come to the United States, not just because it creates jobs here, but also because that way we can have more of an impact on the energy mix that Bitcoin miners are using. The second thing is we see American Bitcoin miners taking this issue extremely seriously. There was a creation last year of a group called the North American Bitcoin Mining Council. They're doing a really great job of surfacing statistics about what the energy use actually is behind Bitcoin, uh, to what extent it is renewable, how it can be used hopefully to incentivize the development of more renewable resources, how it can hopefully stabilize the grid, but also acknowledging some of the problems that Bitcoin mining has potentially created in some areas of the US. So this is, again, a really important, but also very complex issue in a, in a very charged uh, you know, space in terms of, of trying to limit our carbon emissions globally. So again, very happy that there's going to be a hearing. And I think that we'll have a very constructive year on this issue. You know, it's interesting. It does fold into some of the conversation we were having earlier. Obviously, from our perspective, yes, we've, been, we've done substantial work on, on helping to marry up um, uh, Bitcoin mining and renewable energy. Um, it's, a, it's a very big subject. There's a lot of people interested. What's also interesting is that it is seen as a safe space for institutional investment because the regulatory environment is clear. The SEC, you know, even though it's not come out with formal rulings, has at least given enough assurance that it does not consider Bitcoin to be a security and that it does not consider proof of work mining to constitute an investment contract on its face. And so what that's done is it's created a safe space for a lot of institutional money to come in. Now, is that institutional money that's better served to be placed elsewhere in the ecosystem in alternative types of consensus validation that may be less energy intensive in other places and other types of technology, technological development in the ecosystem. I'm not knowledgeable enough to say that, but I think it's an interesting interplay of almost a grudging acknowledgement uh, by one regulator that creates enough safety in a space to draw an enormous amount of money and interest and that may or may not be the best place uh, for that money to come, but it's going there because there is just some semblance of regulatory certainty um, around that and not around other elements. So we're running up on time here. I just wanna ask one last question, uh, just a very brief one. Uh, Anna from the audience asked, what are people not talking about that they should be when they're talking crypto and regulation? So, you know, just really quickly, you know, what's the key thing that all of you think people should be talking about that they're not? Intermediaries and people inside the systems rather than uh, talking about just like the assets themselves as target the regulation. Alan? Don't forget this isn't just about securities regulation. Remember that there's other public policy, um, important public policy issues and interests from consumer protection to protection of misuse of currency for crime, to keeping currency and value out of the hands of sanctioned individuals to tax collection. Um, regulation in this space is not just all about uh, securities regulation, despite the, the, the difficult space we're in with respect to security, the state of securities regulation in this space. Today. 
and I'll say two things, both related to Alan's. One is consumer protection. We keep hearing this idea that crypto is unregulated. That's not true at all. The consumer protection laws, I think, are very powerful and absolutely apply to crypto, just like they apply to every other business in the U.S. And we should be talking more about what we can do under the consumer protection laws to address some of the risks that we're seeing rise in crypto. The second is state regulation. We're all very focused on U.S. federal law. Uh, you know, Washington, D.C. gets all the focus. The states are getting very active. And just like Delaware has become the home of all you know, major corporations, not all but most in the US, I think we're gonna see a lot of states trying to become the Delaware of crypto, much like Texas has become, you know, like Angela said, the Mecca for Bitcoin mining. The states matter as well. Awesome. Well, thank you all very much. I wanna thank Jennifer, Nick, and the Cato Institute, thank Anthony, not me, uh, and the Cato Institute for hosting this panel and inviting us all. And, I want to thank everyone in the audience for joining us. And uh, I'd like to thank the panelists for their time. And with that, I'll hand the microphone back over to Jennifer and have a good day, uh, have a good day everyone. Yeah, thank you all so much. Uh, it was a very quick hour. And I feel like in many ways, we've only scratched the surface of the number of topics that we could be talking about with respect to crypto regulation. Um, I hope that we get to continue to have this conversation. Um, I'd also like to take this opportunity to again, thank all of the other speakers in our series. Chris Brummer, Catherine Cooper, Melissa Netrom, Dan Ari, Albert Forkner, Zaye Masari, Carol Goforth, Nicholas Serto, Peter Van Velkenberg, and our moderators, Sarah Wynn, John Hill, and David Hollerith. That was quite a lineup of speakers. And if you missed any of our previous panels and their great discussions, the recordings are available on Cato's websites. These issues are going to be at the forefront of financial regulation in the coming year and beyond. And I'd like to thank our audience so much for joining the discussion on how to regulate crypto. Have a great afternoon. <laughs>